Welcome to Health Currents Radio. I'm Ellen Goldsmith, your host. This show is all about transforming your life through your health. We're going to meet people who've done that, give you the resources to work on it, and share information that inspires and motivates you to make positive changes in your life. My passion is health, and it's what I've done for over 30 years. Thank you to our sponsor, Pearl Natural Health, a naturopathic acupuncture and Chinese medicine clinic located in downtown Portland, Oregon. You can find Pearl Natural Health at pearlnaturalhealth.com. William Spear is an internationally recognized educator, consultant, author, and lecturer on integrative medicine, feng shui, vital design, end-of-life care, and personal transformation. He is the best-selling author of Feng Shui Made Easy, a featured contributor to Be the Change, How Meditation Can Transform You and the World, and the upcoming Recovering Original Ability. He lives in Connecticut, where his nonprofit, the Fortunate Blessings Foundation, sets itself apart as second responders to address the long-term emotional and psychological well-being of children following disasters. In immediate response to disasters in Southeast Asia, Central Java, Indonesia, Samoa, Japan, and the northeastern area of the United States, William and his team trained hundreds of mental health professionals, medical students, doctors, clergy, parents, volunteers, and caregivers to mitigate the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder in orphaned and traumatized children. Most recently, he has been working with children in the Northeast affected by Hurricane Sandy and is currently engaged in the Community Emergency Response Training in the state of Connecticut. William, welcome to Health Currents Radio. Thank you. Nice to be with you. So we wanted to talk today about emotional healing and the key to recovery that it is. And we know that following these traumatic events, such as Sandy, the earthquake in Haiti, and the Japanese tsunami, after physical access to safe shelter, clean water, and food, for the most part, is restored, that there's this other level to recovery, and that's the long-term emotional recovery. So I just wondered if you could talk about that, that unusual gap that's there, that gap between the physical and that mental-emotional recovery that you've been working with. Sure. Uh, unfortunately, the gap exists and has for some time in the community of disaster relief organizations, uh, not because they don't recognize it or know about it, but because they're, for the most part, ill-equipped to deal with emotional traumas and provide mental health care services. So what's happened is that these emergency responders, the first responders and the big institutional philanthropies and organizations uh, about which almost everyone knows and to which most people donate immediately after a natural disaster, provide the basics of food, water, shelter. And then shortly after they pull out of town, two, three, four weeks later, uh, the reconstruction begins and people remove rubble and they start to think about their houses and their schools and their shops uh, and very naturally go about the business of trying to get their life back together. But sadly, uh, what's going on inside us and especially inside children in what I call their inner landscape um, has the potential to really cripple a community and bring the D in PTSD, which is the disorder uh, of post-traumatic stress. Children have great resilience and for the most part, uh, the majority of them can recover from 
the traumas that are experienced in natural disasters like earthquakes or hurricanes or tsunamis uh, with family support, with community support, and with their natural coping abilities. But probably one out of 10 children, it's estimated, will suffer some kind of permanent post-traumatic stress, which becomes a systemic disorder that's buried deep in their body because of the inability to discharge and release some of the emotions that get pushed down and repressed in order for them to just survive the experience itself. So what we do is organize mental health teams and volunteers to help work with children in very playful ways, in ways that allow them to express themselves very naturally and joyfully. And in the process, they release these deeply held emotions uh, harmlessly without conversation, in most cases without any kind of story or language in what we call play shops. And so I've been trying to articulate for the disaster community through various articles that I've written uh, all over the place, particularly in the Huffington Post where I have a regular blog, that the phases of disaster need to include uh, what I call the recovery phase to distinguish it from the reconstruction phase, which is the third phase, and the recovery being the second phase of a disaster, and that is the recovery of normal emotional responses rather than living with these repressed and deeply stagnated emotions that could cause so much problem later on. So how how is that being received? How is the disaster community receiving this input? I think that the uh, community of uh, disaster workers who are trained staff uh, with whom I've worked on the ground, people from Doctors Without Borders or uh, Mercy Corps or other large organizations who come in the initial stages uh, of the emergency phase are very receptive because they themselves have some psychological and emotional responses that they're not terribly familiar with how to kind of uh, let go of themselves. But they've finished their work in a matter of weeks, and yet they're uh, deployed to stay for perhaps as long as three months. And uh, after that emergency phase is, is pretty much handled when children know where their next meal's coming from, when there's proper hygiene facilities, when their sleeping situations are set up, and uh, some sense of normalcy and, and rhythm and regularity is returned. Um, these workers uh, from some of the big organizations are kind of at a loss to know how to really help kids deal with trauma other than in nice conversations and empathic listening uh, and communication. They've had some basic uh, training, if any, on that kind of empathic listening and, and uh, sensitive caring, which w would come as a result of um, the whole process of preparing to walk into a major disaster but they don't really have any tools uh, that we can provide them with. And uh, disaster workers themselves or volunteers or staff members of these organizations are very receptive. Now, having said that, um, organizations prior to disasters are kind of caught in the middle. They're a little bit reticent to take on something which they think they can't handle uh, and to add to their programming or to add to their uh, burden of tasks to be done before going into a situation. And I've been trying to create what I call preemptive training programs. That is to uh, go to these organizations and communities, uh, parent groups and church groups and so forth 
to just give uh, people an idea of what they can do after a disaster long before the, the storm comes, long before the ground shakes. So they're prepared. And that's uh, very typical of what the CERT training, the Community Emergency Response Team uh, efforts uh, are doing state to state through Homeland Security and FEMA, uh, which includes a psychological uh, module within a seven week course uh, when people learn triage and various emergency response for their own communities. So to include that kind of psychological uh, care is something that has to be experiential more than just didactic. So to really get in there and work with uh, volunteers and community members and give them some sense of how effective they can be in working with kids who've been traumatized. Um, it takes a little time to, to kind of break through some of the barriers we have about working with trauma. Uh, we don't treat PTSD. We're not talking about the D disorder. We're talking about the natural response of post-traumatic stress that everybody has after some traumatic event. Um, so when they get that under their belts in the first 5, 10, 15 minutes of a of a talk or a course, they can understand very quickly that it's actually kind of common sense and they gain some skills to really respond effectively with kids uh, later on. So you're really just uh, cracking open the door to, to an inner world really for people. I can imagine people who have been working on the ground in disasters are experiencing their own trauma of sorts and so cracking the door how to work with kids also cracks the door how to work with oneself also. Exactly. And that's something that uh, you probably know as a caregiver yourself that when someone comes to you with certain issues, uh, they may push your buttons. And you've got to be very careful of uh, really addressing your own needs first. Uh, that old message of what happens when the... Uh, oxygen mask drops down in an airplane where you really have to take care of yourself before the person next to you or before the child next to you. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're constantly in conversation with volunteers and staff members of these organizations to really look at their own issues around trauma, around a disaster or emergencies uh, so that they can be a little bit more empty vessels when they walk in situations. And if they can't, uh, to take time day by day or uh, each afternoon or whatever with each other, with other staff members or uh, with other people in their community um, to just make sure that they're returning to their own inner world in a calm and, and peaceful way and addressing any emotional issues that are very real for them, uh, how their own family is faring. You know, everybody reaches for the phone after the emergency. You don't know anyone in California who probably was in that earthquake or Maybe you don't know anyone who was anywhere near, uh, you know, a, a school shooting or a disaster somewhere, even a big storm in Europe. But somehow you drop somebody an email or you get on the phone and, you know, you get, are you okay? And 99 times out of 100, someone writes back, thanks. I appreciate your concern. But that event took place a long, you know, a long way away. So we, we're all affected no matter how far away we are. We have some little bit of shock when we hear about a disaster and we want to make sure our friends and family are okay when it hits our own community, our own neighborhoods, and yet we have to go out and take care. Uh, we need to make sure our own family is well cared for before we leave the house or before we leave the country. Uh, and that's a very real part of our own emotional response. Exactly. I, 
I wondered if you could talk a little bit about just how the mechanics of the work that you're doing, the play shops you're doing with children, um, and, and just what mechanism is being utilized to help release that trauma from the body. The major category under which our work takes place uh, is probably best referred to as body-centered therapies as opposed to uh, psychological mind-centered therapies. Uh, and that is to say that the body has natural responses that bury emotion for protection and for survival. Uh, and you can't talk those emotions out of the body as easily as you can work them out physically. So from the child's point of view, the experience of what we do in a play shop occurs to them as great fun. We just play games. And they're games that are silly games. They're games that are fun. They're games that are clapping and stomping and jumping and wiggling and uh, twirling and all kinds of things that uh, seem like really goofy things or sometimes very, um, you know, kind of militaristic things where we march around and then we stiffen up or we become, become like noodles after we stiffen up. Mm -hmm. and, and we develop all these different kinds of games uh, based actually on some very uh, time-tested body-centered therapies like bioenergetics uh, that really help to uh, develop flexibility, return rhythm to the body, and help release different stagnations uh, in different parts of the body uh, so that as kids go through the exercises, what they experience as game and play are actually really carefully crafted uh, very deliberate exercises to take them through a series of changes in their body that help them to release these kind of emotions. Uh, and we make some noise. Uh, you know, we might we might uh, open our mouth and make some sounds, some tones. We might cause some kind of spontaneous laughter. We might pretend to be uh, crying. We might pretend to be very scared. And we go back and forth. And what's fascinating about the way in which our body responds to emotion is that in a real trauma, in a real event, uh, as you probably know, certain enzymes and hormones are secreted uh, very quickly in response to disaster. The most obvious one of which that people can, can uh, relate to is adrenaline uh, or cortisol. Our, our kidneys and our adrenal glands uh, just pump into the body certain hormones and enzymes that really help our body mobilize in response to a threat, in response to danger. Uh, and in taking brain waves uh, and brain scans after such experiences, we can see very different areas of the brain are lit up. Uh, so we know that there's a physical, a physiological, biochemical response to fear or to anger or to grief that takes place after uh, we experience one of these uh, uh, kind of vectors, one of these are origins, uh, the earthquake shakes or, or a lightning bolt comes or a gunshot goes off, uh, our body responds biochemically. Mm -hmm. what's, what's amazing though is that even in psychodrama, even in the pretend anger, even in the pretend fear, even in the pretend grief, when you make believe you're crying, your body secretes exactly the same chemicals and your brain responds exactly the same way in the pretend. 
So what we do is we allow the body to naturally return to its normal response instead of stagnating that response. There's a very big difference in what happens in the body when you're scared and you swallow a scream to what happens when you are scared and you let out a scream. There's a big difference in your physiology and biochemistry to what happens when you're really angry but you swallow the anger versus when you're angry and you let it go in a yell, no, stop, or say something that is clearly an expression of anger. And your brain doesn't know the difference between pretend and real in terms of the physiology and biochemistry of what takes place. So we're returning the body to its normal state through these play shops and exercises in ways that as a result of the release of these emotions, allow it to return to a sense of balance, which then ultimately prevents the formation of the disorder and mitigates PTSD from ever occurring. It responds to PTS, but doesn't allow it to develop into PTSD. And if it, if it were to develop in PTSD, there'd be much more grave consequences of all kinds of psychosomatic illnesses, uh, physical problems, skin problems, asthma, digestive disorders, sleep issues, all kinds of things like that, that um, are serious burden on children and their families and the whole community. So I, mean, I absolutely see that in my practice with people who've had severe trauma in their lives and have never really released it from the body, how that comes out um, in their system, in their physical system. But what what's happening at, after these noisy kind of boisterous play shops is children are, must be in a very different state. Could you describe that a little bit? Well, I can give you a really great example of a little boy that we worked with down on the shore in Brooklyn in a little town called Garretson Beach. Uh, we organize our play shops whenever possible in safe environments that children can relate to. So after Hurricane Sandy in the Northeast, uh, we partnered with uh, firehouses. Um, what kid doesn't like to go to the firehouse and see the fire engines? Uh, and, and that was actually where a lot of the community food services were headquartered and a lot of the clothes that were donated to people were lined up on tables. So when we arrived, there were tons of children running around like crazy in the middle of the meal, uh, which preceded the play shop, which we scheduled. And I had a conversation with uh, a couple of the parents and one little boy who was probably five or six was running around uh, as if he just finished eating a bag of Halloween candy. I mean, he was really bouncing off the wall. Um, and he was happy. He seemed okay. Mm -hmm. um, maybe a little overly energetic, but who knows? <laughs> so I said to the mom, um, how's he doing? And she said, well, his dad's a fireman. So his dad was gone a lot and he didn't like that. And his big sister's there and she pointed her out. and She seemed a little more calm. Um, but actually, said the mom, uh, he's still pretty scared. Um, he sleeps with his coat zipped up and he won't take his boots off when he gets into bed because we woke him up in the middle of the night and we had to run out of the house because it started to flood. Mm. So here's this little boy really scared and he joined in the play shop and participated. And after about the first 10 minutes or so, uh, kind of as a as a surprise, and nobody really expected it. While we were making some toning noises, <laughs> he, he started to scream, and I mean, he was screaming 
bloody murder. I mean, really blood curdling scream, loudest scream you could ever hear from this kid. And he just stopped and stood and, you know, monopolized everyone's attention and just shocked everyone in a way. But we know that that's one of the outcomes we hope for. Right. And we're prepared for that kind of initiation of a process, which becomes what we call call and response, as you might expect. So, so the facilitator uh, just screamed right back and got everybody <laughs> in the group to scream right back. Uh-huh. And he, he looked kind of seriously at what that was about. So then he screamed right back at us even louder. <laughs> And then the facilitator screamed right back at him, but this time raised his hands and got everybody in the group to raise their arms and hands and, you know, really just completely let it out of the body. And so he did that copying the facilitator and then the facilitator screamed back and this time stomped his feet up and down and crashed and pounded and screamed and wiggled his whole body. And the little boy did that and finally when he finished doing that, cracked up laughing, (laughs) (laughs) which was fantastic. Um, And of course, you know, we found out a few days later, he, his coat was off and his boots were off and he was back. And that's what happened. That was almost a month after the the event when he had to get up in the middle of the night and he was going to bed with this scream every night. So he he had to let that scream out. And that was a, a very typical kind of success, we'd call it. Uh, of getting out a deeply held emotion that no one could let go. Probably he got shut down a number of times by well-meaning parents and elders around him when all he wanted to do is just scream and get that fear out of his body. He couldn't even name it. And you could have a nice conversation with him about not being scared or other things that you might say to him, but nothing would be more powerful than to just allow him in a safe environment, supportive uh, situation like that to just scream. Absolutely. What a what a beautiful story that is and and really I think an exemplary example of of the work that you're doing and the freedom that people are are getting after that. So, I just want to let people know a little bit about what's coming up for you. You will be at the New York Green Festival on Sunday, April 21st from 3 to 3:45 p.m. on stage A. I know it's a big place, the Jacob Javits Center, and you're going to be uh, speaking on building resilient communities after natural disasters. And to contact you, they can email you at? W at williamspear.com or william at fortunateblessings.org. And fortunateblessings.org is the website where they can read much more about uh, the work we do as well. Yeah, there's a lot of information on on the work that you did at the tsunamis and in Sri Lanka and in Japan and if people are so inclined to support this very important work, I urge you to go to fortunateblessings.org, and there is a donate button. And that uh, donation will go 100% to support ongoing training of mental health professionals, volunteers, such as William spoke about, the theater volunteers and other first responders who are interested in this work. And these people will work with children before and after natural disasters and transform stress, fear, and held emotion in the body to a sense of freedom and bring back balance and rhythm to a child's life. So that, That's great. Thanks for mentioning that. We're just really trying to build capacity on the ground so that people can be prepared uh, when events take place and we don't have to take eight or 10 people to a faraway uh, village somewhere or to a, 
a state somewhere in the United States where we haven't already been, but rather we'll have trained a few dozen people on the ground and one or two of us can go uh, and help facilitate a workshop, play shop. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for the work you're doing and thank you for spending time today speaking with us. Thanks for the invitation. I appreciate it, Ellen. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What William Spear described in his work to prevent post-traumatic stress disorder in children is rooted deeply in the body. What if you could regain your connection with yourself, feel more flow, more balance, more peace? There are powerful options and ways to explore that while bringing more aliveness and vitality to your life. The saying by some in regards to physical complaints that people have that it's all in your head can be completely confusing for someone who's really experiencing it deeply in their body. Could not we change this to, it's all in the body? Can emotional recovery be a key to healing that's rooted in the body? If so, then the path can be widened to include body-centered approaches, such as, just to mention a few, bioenergetic therapy, core energetics, and Hakomi, which work with deep-seated emotions that manifest physically. Alexander Lowen, who is the founder of bioenergetic therapy, a form of psychoanalysis rooted in the body, wrote, Bioenergetics rests on the simple proposition that each person is his body. No person exists apart from the living body in which he has existence and through which he expresses himself and relates to the world around him. If you are your body and your body is you, then it expresses who you are. It's your way of being in the world, and the more alive your body is, the more you are in the world. So I want to give you some resources to explore. If you have those feelings that are almost indescribable, a feeling that you're stuck, that somehow there's something in your way to moving forward, you might want to explore some more body-centered types of therapy. So to learn more about bioenergetic therapy and find qualified therapists, you can go to www.bioenergetic-therapy.com. For core energetics therapy, which is based on a deep understanding how energy and consciousness work together in the transformative process of healing and is body-centered in its approach, you can learn more and find a therapist at www.coreenergetics.org. And finally, Hakomi Therapy. Hakomi is a body-centered somatic psychotherapy, somatic meaning body, and it means that the body serves as a resource that reflects and stores formative memories and the core beliefs that we have. And it also provides significant access routes to core material. You can learn more at hakomiinstitute.com, and Hakomi is spelled H-A-K-O-M-I. So I hope that you can explore these resources and realize that if you're stuck in a way, even on a physical level, you might want to explore the emotional components that are rooted and centered in the body through some of these therapies that I've mentioned. That's all for our show today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ellen Goldsmith. My passion is health, and it's what I've done for over 30 years. Thank you again to our sponsor, Pearl Natural Health, a naturopathic acupuncture and Chinese medicine clinic located in downtown Portland, Oregon. You can find Pearl Natural Health at pearlnaturalhealth.com. 
You can listen to Health Currents Radio and connect with us on communityradio.fm slash healthcurrentsradio. Find us on iTunes, download us on the mobile app Stitcher, or join in the conversation at facebook.com slash healthcurrentsradio. We want to know how you are transforming your life through your health. Join us next week because we have a surprise guest. And that guest is me. And I'm going to spend the podcast speaking with you on the benefits of mindfulness in stress reduction.